0: Well, good morning. Allow me to be next in line to wish you all a happy Father's Day. So glad that you're here today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Especially if you're a newcomer here and you haven't been around before, we welcome you to Carnegie Free. So glad that you chose to worship with us today, and I'd love to connect with you after the service. If you are a newcomer here, I don't normally wear a T-shirt and shorts when I preach, But uh, I get to today because I'm a dad. And I'm going to do what I want. (laughs) All right, if I get a a hand clap for that, I better get some hand claps for something good later on in this message. Yeah, if my outfit offends you, too bad. (laughs) We are so grateful that you're here today. We're so thankful for the many wonderful dads and grandfathers and great-grandfathers that we have at this church You know, men get a bad rap in our culture, and uh, sometimes for a good reason, sometimes not so much, but I want to tell you, the men in this church are special. We got so many awesome dads and grandfathers in this church, such great men's ministries here. It's our men's ministry that put on that Seventh Avenue, Customs and Chromes, which I'm unashamedly marketing right now, and uh, we have great, great men's ministries with Men in Action and our Men's Forge and different men's Bible studies and uh, wonderful men in this church whom I look up to, whom I want to become more like myself. And uh, I'm so thankful for the dads and the granddads here with us today. I know that, that Father's Day, like Mother's Day, is difficult for some of us. And uh, you, you perhaps uh, didn't have the greatest dad. And uh, I get that. It makes Father's Day perhaps a little bit difficult. So I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray for all of us as we enter into the Scriptures And even that we would remind ourselves that we all have a father, and as we just sang, he is a good, good father. You are good God. You are good. We hold this in our minds, no matter what we've come from, that we are fathered by God himself. Would you join me in prayer as we open up this morning? Father, we do thank you that you're a good father, that your compassions never fail, That they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Your promise does not fail. And we trust in you, God, because many of us have gone through trials even to get to this point today. Many of us have had disappointments in our families of origin. Many of us have been disappointed by others. But we know that you invite us into your family, Father, and for that we are grateful. Thank you, God, that you love us, that you want us to be your children That you would invite us into your family in spite of the wrong things that we have done. You love us unconditionally. You have paved the way for us to know you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, I thank you for each man in this room. I thank you for each woman in this room. And I ask, Lord, that you would bless each and every one. They've brought in various hurts and trials, different priorities in life right now that can make it difficult to focus on the Bible can make it difficult to focus on the things of God. And so we ask for this moment that you would give our minds clarity, that we would think great thoughts of you, that we would learn from your word and perhaps even apply it to our lives. I confess, God, this is not an easy message. So I need your help. Perhaps we all do. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you might teach us today from your beautiful word in Jesus' holy name, we ask together. Amen. Amen. Two simple words describe the reason that Judah and Israel were conquered by Assyria and Babylon, respectively, why Jerusalem was burned to the ground and the temple was raised. Two simple words. There's four books in the Old Testament that are devoted to retelling the history of how we got to this point and what happened related to these two simple words. There's 13 books of prophecy in which prophets give warning to the people of Israel before the destruction of Jerusalem Turn back from these two words. The reason the temple was destroyed in Israel, in Jerusalem, back in 586 B.C., the reason Babylon came in and took Judah down, the reason Assyria came in and took Israel down can be described in these two words, idolatry and injustice, idolatry and injustice. We've traveled quite a ways through our 20 weeks in this series, God's Story, Our Story, to get to this point. And as we've looked at the overarching meta narrative of God's story in the Bible, we've seen a number of repeated themes. And a couple of those repeated themes that we've sought to point out include these. God chooses to reveal himself to us. He chooses to tell us what his character is like and invite us into a personal relationship with him. And then with that, we see the devastating consequences of human failure and sin. And the human failure and the sin that brought up God's anger in the passages that we look at today, in this episode that we look at today, stem from these two words, idolatry and injustice. In this episode, King David has already died. He's lived his life faithfully. He has fulfilled God's purpose for his life, and he's gone up to heaven. His son Solomon started off well, but then he prostituted himself to wealth and foreign gods and women and power, and he didn't end well. The kingdom is now split in two, Israel or Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south. And that's where we pick up the story today. We have a little video that will help us through it as we come to 2 Kings 22. If you want to turn there in your Bible, I'll get there a little bit later on today. But we have a video to summarize this episode of the story. This comes from the thebibleproject.com. You can see a number of great videos there, including the full-length video on First and 2 Kings. Take a quick look.
1: The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son Rehoboam acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, 0 for 20. And then in southern Judah, only 8 out of 20 get a positive rating. Which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune-tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. The most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men and they played the same role confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice and ultimately they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section, the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu who destroys Ahab's family. And although Jehu was at first commissioned by God, his violence just gets out of control and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which Israel never recovered. Coup follows coup after Jehu and each king follows other gods, allows horrible injustice. It all leads up to 2 Kings chapter 17. the big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria it's conquered and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so God has allowed them to face the consequences of their decisions. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings, like Hezekiah, who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door. Or Josiah, who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But... Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up. Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian Empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile. And so the story ends leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Jehoiakim, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings.
0: Okay, again, did you get all that? Hey, are these videos helpful for you? Raise your hand if they are. Okay. Are they unhelpful? Raise your hand if they're not. It's fine if they're not. Just want to impromptu survey from you. Okay. Um, you see it there? Idolatry and injustice leading to exile. Next week, well, we'll talk about exile. You won't want to miss that message because it applies So much to how we live today, where we're living even today, but it's these two words that lead to the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed, Israel to the north being destroyed, Judah to the south being destroyed, it's idolatry and injustice. Well, what do they mean? How would you define these words? I've defined idolatry this way, it's elevating any person, any place, anything beyond its proper place such that we end up trusting in it. It can be almost anything, that we give something our trust, we give something our affections, we give our sense of safety to something else that is not God. And the way Israel was doing this during this 200-year episode that you just saw in that video looked mostly like worshipping the foreign gods of the nations all around them. So in addition to worshipping these temples that were made to Baal and to Ashtoreth, they would make some of their own. And Jeremiah comments on this in Jeremiah chapter 2 to give you a description of what's going on in Israel and Judah at this time. They say to wood... You are my father. And they they say to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. Have you ever heard someone say there's no sense of humor in the Bible? Okay, that's mockery. That's sarcasm that's the prophet Jeremiah looking over at Israel looking at Judah why are you doing this there's as many false little gods that you've carved for yourself and put on the hillsides all over your communities and they can do nothing for you they're more proliferate than the number of towns in Judah itself that's idolatry It's giving your sense of trust over some other person, place, or thing, uh, some sense of safety from something outside of God. And of course, it does nothing for us. Injustice is this. Injustice is mistreatment or neglect of the vulnerable. It's choosing to look at what is vulnerable, people who are vulnerable, and mistreating them or simply ignoring them. The Bible calls that injustice. So you have all over the Bible, but especially in the prophetic literature, these 13 books of prophets uh, verses littered throughout that sound like this one from Isaiah 1:17. Let's read this one out loud together. Would you please join me? Isaiah 1:17 says this. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case plead the case of the widow. Now friends, the reason that we are voyaging through the Bible can I remind you it's not for the sake of knowledge. It's not for the sake of information. Information is good, knowledge is good, but that's not why we're voyaging through the Bible in 2018. It's because this is God's story, which is also intended to be our story. This stuff matters for our lives, and this is still the heart of God. Now, we've got to understand here, as we look at a verse like that, that this is still the heart of God. He would have us speak up for those who are neglected or mistreated, to speak up for the vulnerable. It begs the question for me, what does idolatry look like in our own context? What would neglect, what would mistreatment, what would injustice look like in our own context? This is the job of all good biblical interpretation, to take a verse like that and then to transfer it across the centuries and across the cultures to our own and say, what does that look like Here? Now we don't see little stone carvings to little gods on the sand hills. Hopefully not. But is there idolatry here? Somebody say yes with me. There's plenty. There's plenty. Let, let me give you a few examples. Perhaps idolatry in our day is most seen as people gain their sense of safety from wealth. From 401ks. From the stuff that money buys. It can easily become our God if we're not careful. Or perhaps it's seen in the way many tend to idolize in our culture beauty or youth or sex and oftentimes despise the elderly, those who aren't considered beautiful by Hollywood standards. You know people who worship the American dream and they conflate it with the gospel of Christ. You ever seen that? Let me be clear, I love the American dream, but it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's many who conflate the two such that they end up worshiping the American dream of I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and manifest destiny will be mine. That is not the gospel. We do not put our ultimate trust in that. Can I get an amen? We don't. We put our trust in something that's far greater than that. As good as the American experiment has been, we put ourselves into the hands of a loving God and the gospel of Jesus Christ which saves now and forevermore. We'd be careful what we are trusting in. Or how about those who tend to give this perfect, polished image of themselves all the time? Why are they doing that? Because they gain their sense of personal identity from that. They have a sense of trust that comes out of that. They, they, They trust in Being always put together, to which I'm like, come on. You know you ain't fooling anyone. We all know you got stuff behind those doors, just like all of us do. Or this expectation that my kids would always be 100% obedient and perfect. No, they're not. We all know they're not. So we don't trust in this image of what we are supposed to be in front of others. We trust in the gospel of Christ. How about neglect of the vulnerable? What does that look like? Does that happen anywhere in our culture? I think we see this when the elderly are forgotten or ignored or treated as less than in our culture. I think we see neglect. I think we see injustice when unborn babies are snuffed out. We see injustice today when there are business loan practices that actually charge the highest interest rates to the poorest people. You realize that happens in America. That's injustice. Or you think about the contemporary debates over immigration, which I don't care to get into, but it's very, very interesting to me that many Christians, it seems, don't even care, don't even seem to care about the plight of an immigrant and what they might have come from. I'm not trying to get political. I don't know the answers. It's way above my pay grade. I don't know the answers to difficult political uh, discussions related to, immigra- to, 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 to immigration but it, I, I read this article a couple weeks ago that just made my heart sink and it was about different groups in America, different religious and non-religious groups in America and how they respond to current refugee crises all around the world. I mean there's refugee crises going on in Venezuela and in Syria and in Sudan and, and we've had people in this community who have come out of those crises, right? Right? We've had a number of people in this community. It was so interesting while reading this article in a Christian magazine about the different groups and their response to refugees who were fleeing violence. And the group of people who showed the least amount of concern for refugees around the world by a very far margin was self-described evangelical Christians. Now, Evangelical Christians are supposed to believe that the Bible is the word of God which is so interesting to me when there's some 95 verses in the Bible about how Christians are to respond to immigrants who come into our midst. Once again, I don't know the answers to these very complex political questions, but I know this. God's heart is for the vulnerable. God's heart is for the wanderer. God's heart is for those who are broken hearted and neglected. And I have to ask myself, am I willing to walk a mile in someone else's shoes before judging them? Anyone else? This is what we need to do as Christians. It was Jesus himself who said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and thank you, you gave me something to drink. I was lonely. I was a wanderer, and you welcomed me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, Israel failed to do this. That's the point. Israel failed to do this, and of some 90 references in the Old Testament calling them to do that with respect to wanderers who would come in, but, but also hundreds and hundreds of references in the Old Testament with respect to justice and all of its various forms. Israel failed to show mercy to the vulnerable. And so they become, in this episode, the subject of God's very clean anger. This is what happens. There's kind of an upper story and a lower story here. And on the lower story, if you're just looking at things from the human perspective, yeah, you'd have to say, that Israel and Judah were defeated by Assyria and Babylon because Assyria and Babylon had stronger armies and wiser kings. But in the opera story, God uses Assyria and Babylon as his pawns to institute justice on his people in Israel. And here is the reason. No matter the day, here in 2018 or way back in 600 B.C., Injustice and idolatry invoke God's clean anger. Please write this down. Hold on to this big idea. This is the big idea from this episode that leads to the exile of God's people. Injustice and idolatry invoke God's clean anger. You see, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves just as a good father disciplines the son that he delights in. As a good father would chasten the son that he delights in, so also our good father in heaven disciplines those he loves. So let me clarify what I mean by clean anger. Our God and father is not like some Santa Claus in the sky. And Jesus the Christ is not like your little homeboy, in spite of what Hollywood might say. Jesus is the image of masculinity that we men want to live up to. He is what we emulate. He is the the, the portrait of a man who is fully alive. And so when we look at Jesus, we see someone who was patient and gentle, who was kind, who was loving, who cared for people in the lowest position, cared for people in the highest position, spoke out against injustice and led us to worship. He was all of those things, but also he demonstrated strength. And there are times in the Gospels that you see Jesus demonstrating an anger that is intense, don't you? So what's up with that? Well, it's a clean anger as opposed to the way anger tends to look in my life. I don't know about you, I tend to get angry when someone does something that I don't like, when somebody offends me, when somebody mistreats me. What's the common denominator in all this? It's me, right? But when did Jesus get angry? When someone else was mistreated. Jesus got angry when a tax collector was mistreating someone else. Jesus got angry when a Pharisee was putting a heavy load on someone else and unwilling to help that other person. Jesus got angry when Pharisees were gonna stone someone who did something wrong. Jesus got angry in those situations. Just like we would be wise to have a clean sense of anger when we see a child being abused or when we see someone being frauded by a business. In those situations, we don't just kind of sit back on pillows of loving nothingness. No, that would be neglect, not love. And so God, in his clean anger, he manifests to Israel in this moment because Israel was intended to be a lighthouse, but instead Israel had become this house of horrors. Israel intended to be This blessing to all nations, remember that's the Abrahamic covenant that we've talked about again and again, that God would make Israel great and that through Israel all the other nations around it would be blessed, but it failed to do that and so God institutes his justice against his people in this story, all for the purpose of bringing them to repentance and eventual restoration And eventually, later on in the story, they will come back to Israel and they will rebuild those broken walls of the temple. The whole dark episode shouts to us the way we live really matters. The way you live really matters because we have a God who is holistic in his character. He's not just kind and loving, he's also strong. And at times, he even demonstrates a clean anger and a justice against us when we do wrong. Being a lighthouse matters mercy and justice and purity. These things really matter to the heart of God. So, how do we respond to this episode? in which God sends Israel away because of these two words, idolatry and injustice? I think the way we respond is we acknowledge that we all can go the same way that Israel went. And so what are some things that we can do to confront the natural tendency to really look out for self and kind of neglect the vulnerable amongst us? What are some things, though, that we can do to say, no, I'm going to worship God and God alone? Let let me suggest two possible applications, though, this morning. Number one, serve someone who is different than you. Get in the habit of serving people who are different than you. Once again, that passage from Isaiah chapter one, says 17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In every single case, that is someone different than me. And there's something powerful that when we get in the habit of serving people who are different than us, we realize they're not all that different than us. As we get in the habit of getting up close with people, we no longer demonize them, we no longer idolize them, we begin to humanize them. And we recognize they're just ordinary people with real needs just like ours, and we don't stand askance at them, we get up close and we get close to them and we pray for them and we love them. But one of the things I love so much about this church is this, this is happening. I mean, last week, I can't tell you how proud I was as a pastor of this church that we made a simple announcement from Justine Shedder for the health care clinic. And this is a clinic that's in town to help those who are underinsured, those who can't afford health care insurance. And we have a number of medical doctors and nurses and various medical personnel who go over there on a monthly basis and serve those who are uninsured, the poorest amongst us. And there's a need for more volunteers over there. And last week after a single announcement, 14 of you stepped up and said, I'll do that each month. Yeah, you can clap for that, please. Because this is close to the heart of God. I love it when I see us mixing it up with our bilingual ministry and we say, yeah, we're different. Sometimes we don't have the same language. But I love you, my brother or sister in Christ, and you love me. As I'm your brother and sister in Christ. And I don't quite know your story, but I want to get to know your story and I want to serve you. And I see the way dozens and dozens of you do that with the storehouse ministry. And so many men who do that with men in action for our widows and single parents and others in all kinds of distress. All of that, my friends, is the heart of God. It's serving someone who looks and acts and may I dare say, sometimes even sins a little bit differently than you or me. We get up close with those who are different, and then we begin to humanize them, and we love them in the name of Jesus our Lord. Are you with me? Anyone with me? This isn't Adrian here, whether you like this or don't. This is an Adrian. This is what the Bible says, okay? I'm just preaching for you the Bible. Come on, y'all. All right, second, worship without regard for what people think. We serve people who are different than us and we worship without regard for what anyone thinks. I tell you, well, when you forget caring about the person to your right or your left in your neighborhood or in this church service or wherever else you go, and you just worship without regard to what anyone else thinks, then you are close to the heart of God because there's no one else who can judge you, only God And so we live our lives before him, and the more we do that, the more we work against this natural tendency to idolize the opinions of other people. There's a beautiful chapter at the end of this episode, 2 Kings chapter 22, in which King Josiah, who's quite possibly the second greatest king in the kingdom of Judah, right after King David, and King Josiah is right at the very end. God has already decreed that the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will be taken down. And Babylon the Great will come and destroy the temple, and they will go into exile. But even so, Josiah has this meeting with God, and he determines that he is going to follow God no matter what other people might do. And if you know, though, the story, what happens to Josiah is, He's going somewhere through the temple. In the midst of doing so, he finds these scrolls that were lost. you know what was lost? The Scriptures. For decades, the people in Jerusalem did not have the Scriptures. They didn't have the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which they were supposed to be meditating on day and night. And he's going through the temple, and he finds the scrolls that were written by Moses in the first five books of the Bible, and he starts reading them. And the next thing that we see from Josiah is he falls to his knees and he starts mourning in repentance because he recognizes this vast delta between the commands of God and the way the people have been living. And he falls to his eyes, falls to his face in repentance, and he asks God for forgiveness and he tears his robes and he says, what do we do because we've fallen so far from what God has expected of us? And he learns well from his secretary and from his priest that there's a well-known prophetess by the name of Huldah who is on the other side of Jerusalem who speaks up for God and people have been ignoring her. And so the priest and the secretary go to Huldah to ask for her prophecy from the Lord our God as to what they should do now that they've found the scrolls of Moses. And we see her response here. In 2 Kings 22, verse 15, she, Huldah, said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, tell the man, Josiah, who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says, I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me. And burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger to all the other, by all the, other, all the idols their hands have made. My anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you have heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people." that they would become accursed and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. And so Josiah is told that what God has decreed is still going to happen, and he can't stop that. Now, he'll be buried in peace because he's responded to God But even so, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And here is Josiah's response to this word from the Lord in chapter 23, verse 1. Follow me now. Then the king, Josiah, called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. You think my sermons are long sometimes? Five books of the covenant, he read them all. In the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in the book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant on that day. What a response of worship! Our city is going to be destroyed. But still, God, I'm going to worship you. The people are probably going to think I'm nuts. Still, God, I'm going to unscroll, unroll these scrolls and read the covenant to the people, and we are going to respond. And for the very first time, the people of Judah celebrate the Passover for the first time in centuries as they commit themselves back to God and acknowledge that he was the one that saved them out of Egypt. It strikes me that Huldah and Josiah are these voices in the wilderness who took this huge risk to step out against the current of their culture and to step out for God to say yes for him. And even though many in Jerusalem would likely question Josiah for this change in direction, Josiah says, yes, God, I will follow you. And even though many prophets like Huldah had already arisen and they had been ignored by the people of Israel and sometimes even killed by the people of Israel, Huldah said, I believe I have a word from the Lord and yes, Lord, I will speak it to Josiah. And even though others might not understand why we take this book so seriously, do you say yes? Yes. And even though others might not understand why you take this temple of the Holy Spirit so seriously, honoring God with your body and your soul and maintaining holiness before Him, we say yes to God. And even though others might not understand why we would take risks for the kingdom of God, that we would go to unsafe places so we could tell people about the unconditional love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we say yes to God regardless of what anyone thinks, and that, my friends, is worship. All of me, for all of God's glory, no matter what anyone else thinks, God, I want your will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And from that comes freedom and joy in our Maker. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that really when we boil down all of this history and all of this prophecy and all of the destruction that went on during this very painful episode in Israel's history, as we boil it all down, Your Word is very simple. You want us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want us to love others well. Father, we just confess to you that we are all tempted to worship something that is far less than God. We don't really call it idolatry in our culture. But the truth is we all are tempted to trust in something is far less than Jesus Christ. Maybe you would simply admit that today, that you're tempted by something, to put your trust in some person or some opinion of some other individual or tempted to put your trust in money or whatever it might be. Would you simply admit that right now by raising your hand and saying, God, I need your help with this. My suspicion is all of us would be in that place in one way or another, that we need your help because we are tempted to trust in something that is less than God himself. And Father, there's something natural in all of us that we, we just look out for ourselves and we tend to blame people who are hurting. And sometimes we don't act with the Christian charity and mercy and justice that you would expect of us. And as you listen to this message, if you heard something that would apply to you, perhaps there, that that there's something in you that you you tend to ignore or mistreat those who are vulnerable, would you just admit that to God right now? Would Would you simply raise your hand to God and say, I need your help with this, Lord. Thank you. My guess is most of us would be in that place that by ourselves we will ignore others particularly will tend to blame those who are vulnerable so Father we ask that you would forgive us for our sins that you would bring us back to a heart of true worship that we would understand the full orb nature of your great character that you are loving, that you are just, that you are merciful, that you are kind, that you are patient but you are strong and you're holy and so God we want to worship you as you are give ourselves fully to you no matter what other people might do we confess we need your help Lord would you help us to do that even this week maybe there's someone that you would call to mind that we need to serve this week maybe there's a time that we need to worship this week would you bring it to our minds we give ourselves to you asking that you would have your way in us through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray together amen and amen